Well, good morning, church. Y'all doing all right? I hope that y'all are coffeeed up. It's going to be a good message today, if I don't say so myself, okay? But uh, no, I'm so glad to see you guys. Uh, man, we're on the tail end now, coming off of Thanksgiving. You survived, and now it is on to Christmas. So let's, let's, uh, let's survive that, okay? Let's do that. Uh, so good to see you. Um, as Matt was saying, hey, make sure you take that invite card. Uh, as much as we want you to remember the times that we are having Christmas Eve services here. Uh, don't just put that like on your refrigerator and say, oh, it's a good reminder for me. Uh, use it as an opportunity to share with a neighbor, friend, coworker, um, because there's been all kinds of surveys and research done that people are very, very receptive um, at Christmas time to receive an invite from you. It will be um, a great service. We'll have uh, candlelight uh, lighting time where we'll sing, and so wear your ugly Christmas sweater and bring the family, okay? Even the ones you don't like, because they need Jesus, amen? Okay, but anyway, hey, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation 21. Revelation 21, the last book of the Bible, actually the second to last chapter of Scripture, and if you've been with us uh, over the last couple weeks, we've been in this ser series called The Return of the King, looking at the second coming of Christ. And you don't need me to tell you this, but there have been all kinds of things um, all around the world, people who tried to predict when Jesus is coming, exactly what it will look like. But over the last couple weeks, we have been looking at Scripture as our source of truth um, because not everything, believe it or not, that you see on YouTube is real, all right, or true. And so we want to look at Scripture and say, okay, what, what is it? Um, and like, what do we need to expect and prepare our hearts and our minds um, for? But how does it determine how we live um, when we look at and study the second coming of Christ? And so we see that he is returning. So just kind of bring some context uh, to bring us up to speed, whether you've been here for the series or you haven't. Um, let's kind of talk through this a little bit. Um, the first week we looked in Matthew 24, Jesus is teaching on the Mount of Olives and he's sharing some things, really kind of some signs of the last, um, last days, what, what the end will look like, really kind of painting some broad strokes. Um, but he says, hey, there's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. There's going to be nations that are in conflict with one another. Um, there's going to be all kind of craziness that is uh, taking place. There's going to be some false teachers. There's going to be some people that come that claim that they, they are Jesus and they're teaching one thing and people are going to fall for it. They're going to, um, it says they're going to become fools. And so they're, they're going to believe it. They're going to be um, led astray by the false prophets. And um, during that time, as Jesus said, that there's going to be great persecution for believers, for the church, for Christians, that there will be a great time um, um, towards the end of days that we will be under persecution. Now, I always kind of preface persecution. I'm not saying that the Christians right now in this day of age are not being persecuted. But we also have to have a reality check in a lot of regards. We are nowhere near, at least in, the Ameri in America, in our context, being persecuted like Christians around the world. Uh, oftentimes we're like, well, Starbucks doesn't say Merry Christmas anymore. We're being persecuted. No, we're not, okay? All right? 
uh, our lives are not on the line right now. Now, you might be like, well, I, there might be things that line up, and you, there might be truth to that. Um, I would probably agree with you on some of those things. But we know at the end of days, there will be great persecution. But Jesus said, as he's teaching at the Mount of Olives, in that all these things will take place, and then Christ will return. So Jesus will return. And Jesus says in that moment that I will return and no one knows the hour, all right? So no one knows. So the crazies that are like, well, according to the mind calendar on this day, on this year, Jesus is returning. Don't believe that, okay? That's some wahoo on, you know, on YouTube, all right? Um, no one knows. And there's been, ever since the beginning of time, all kind of predictions and different things. As I shared last week, I think we all thought Y2K was going to be the end, all right? And it wasn't, surprise. Um, and so Jesus says there's going to be an end time, and he even says that heaven and earth will pass away. So we saw that in the first week. Last week, if you were here, we fast-forwarded to Revelation 19, and so we see um, in the book of Revelation, the end times take place and you see all these signs kind of come to fruition as prophesied. And in Revelation 19, Jesus returns and it is a bodily return. He doesn't come as some angel or some spirit or ghost or whatever. He comes, he is a actual body and his presence is here in bodily form. And what he does is he comes back because at that time, if you remember, there has been a period of seven years of tribulation, meaning it's been hard on earth. There's different views on this, so you can go and research and form your own opinions that, you know, Christians will be raptured up before the tribulation, they'll be raptured in the middle of the tri tribulation, or be, um, it'll be post-trib view of, hey, Christians are going to suffer through this time. But what we see in Scripture is that during um, the, the seven years of tribulation, uh, quite frankly, all hell breaks loose. The anti Antichrist is ruling. There's false prophets. There's been a huge revolt of non-believers against Jesus. So Jesus returns, and there's this final battle, as we know, in this battle of Armageddon, where once and for all, Jesus defeats all of his enemies at the end of this, this tribulation time frame. So in uh, Revelation 19, we see, I think it's so epic, where an angel summons the birds of the sky to come and eat the flesh of the enemies that Jesus has conquered. That's sick, okay? Or if you're from up north, that's wicked, man. All right, okay? And so it's this incredible picture that Jesus comes. And we saw last week that his first coming as a baby, meek and mild, humble, with a mission to seek and to save the lost. When he returns the second time, it's not meek and mild. He is a warrior. He is a king. He is going to be victorious, and he is going to defeat his enemies. And so we saw that take place um, at the end of Revelation 19. And at the end, we see Jesus then sends the Antichrist and the false prophet into hell. Now, if you look and go into chapter 20, what ends up happening is Jesus binds Satan. He actually cast him into what scripture says, into the abyss, into a bottomless pit where he is chained up and bound by a great chain. So he's actually not in hell. He's in uh, kind of this Hades or middle ground, if you will, being bound by Jesus. Now, 
I think this is so important. We're going to be in 21 today, but chapter 20 should get every single one of our attentions. Whether you are a believer, you are questioning who Jesus is, you have some church baggage, wherever you are on that spectrum, it is a sobering, sobering chapter. So after Jesus defeats his enemies, what we see in scripture is that he will reign on earth for a thousand years. It's known as the millennium. Once again, there's all kinds of views on this. Um, and so research it. Um, if you want to talk, I can give you some resources. We can talk, go to coffee. Um, I told the first service, if we do that, uh, make sure you get a venti because it's going to be a long conversation, okay? Uh, there's a lot of different research and things, but what we see is that when Christ comes, defeats his enemies, he will reign for a thousand years. Now, as he reigns, uh, I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of it. There's not a ton of information, a lot of theories. But as he reigns, he will reign in Jerusalem as king for his glory and his power to be on full display around the world. And what is happening in that time, in a lot of regards, life is as normal. People get married. They have kids. We have jobs. It's, it's normal life, all right? We didn't, like, you don't win wings and get a crown then, okay? You're doing normal life. But because Jesus has defeated his enemies and Satan is cast into this bottomless pit, sin and the effects of sin are actually diminished. They're still present, but they are diminished. So people are still born with a sinful nature in, in this world. And so there's a lot of things in Scripture, I'll be transparent, as I read that and, and, and researched it and really kind of meditated on it, I don't have all the answers to everything. If I did, I'd be God. And obviously, I'm not God. And there's a reason that God calls us to have a life of faith. And this is just one of those things. I'm not going to argue about it. It's not a salvation issue, in my opinion, about exactly all the details of this millennial reign. But Jesus will reign during this time frame. And everything will kind of be normal. But at the end of that millennial reign, what takes place, and I don't get it, but Jesus, one last time, will unleash Satan. So Satan will now come. And you might be saying, well, why does he do that? Well, because people are still of sinful nature, even though the, the effects are minimized, what we will see is one final proof that the heart of man is, is broken, that we have a sinful nature. And so what we see in chapter 20 is that people who did not really believe in Christ did not call him king, will then once again side with Satan, revolt against Jesus, and Jesus one final time defeats Satan and cast him into hell. Then that brings us to what is known as the great white throne of judgment. Here's where it gets very real and very sobering. During this judgment time, so on earth, as we see it, as Jesus reigns, there will be believers and there will be non-believers. And at this point of time, at the end of chapter 20, we see that Jesus turns to the books, one of those books being the book of life. If you grew up in church, you probably have heard the Lamb's book of life. When I was in high school, our church did these things. I'm, praise God, they don't do these anymore. But they, were, um, they would be like um, judgment houses. Do you remember these? 
You remember those things? Like you would go and like they'd scare you into hell or heaven, you know? And, um, but they would also do these things called heaven's gates, hell's flames. And I'm not saying they didn't serve their time and purpose, but oftentimes it was like, hey, Lamb's book of life, open this up. I thought, oh my goodness, if my name's not in that book, I'm going to hell. It is true. And what we see is that Jesus turns to this book and anyone whose name is not in the book does not go to spend eternity in heaven. They are actually casted into the lake of fire. So they go to hell. And you might say, well, that just doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. Why would God send people to hell? What I would say, which isn't fair, is that God gives you and I life that we do not deserve right now in the present. And we are faced every single day with a decision. You can either follow Jesus or not. And so oftentimes when it comes to that point, when you and I die at some point, you know, whether it's today, next week, years from now, you and I will come face to face with Jesus. And we will have to answer the question that he asked, why should I let you in? Why should you enjoy eternity with me? That is a real question. And for many of us, we wrestle with, well, let me just kind of wait. Let me kind of wait. Let me kind of get my life straight. Let me kind of figure some things out. And then I'll make that decision. It will be too late. When you can feel the flames of hell, the decision cannot be made anymore. And so you and I, right now, right here, are faced with this reality that we see um, and as, that John is painting this incredible picture of the end times at the end of 20, that if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so kind of kind of set context, that's where we're at, that's where we're going uh, this morning. We're gonna be in Revelation 21, but before we do, this is what's so important. If you're taking notes, it'll also be on the screen that your future reality is determined by your present relationship. Your future reality as it is in regards to your eternity in heaven or hell is determined by your present relationship right now. Has there ever been a time in your life that you have given your life to Christ? Not gone to church, not said my mom or dad are pastors or missionaries, I grew up that way, I've read the Bible before. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your relationship with Jesus. Has there been a time that you said, you know what, I'm separated from him. Sin has separated me from a holy God. I need a relationship with him. And the only way for that to happen is for me to acknowledge my sin, surrender my life, and say to the best of my ability, I offer or I ask you for your grace and forgiveness, and I offer you my life, and I wanna live for you. That's the relationship I'm talking about. And so, that relationship right now really determines this future reality, whether you spend eternity in heaven or um, hell. It is so, so important. So what we are going to look at today in Revelation 21 is that when this happens, when this takes place, and Jesus looks at the book and says, okay, now here's reward for those who believed, and here is the punishment for those who did not. The only people on earth will be believers. Does that make sense? You track it with me? It will only be followers of Christ who have made that decision. And so we see this incredible picture. So if you have your Bibles, let's open them up. Um, Revelation 21, it'll be on the screen. Let's read through this. So 
this takes place after Jesus defeats Satan. The judgment takes place. This is what happens. Uh, verse 1. We're going to go to uh, verse 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I mean, can you picture this? Like, it's so hard to grasp, but what an incredible sight. What an incredible sight that God is doing and renewing and creating this new heaven and new earth and this new city of Jerusalem, preparing it um, as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse three, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have uh, this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so we see that after Jesus defeats Satan, the judgment takes place. He prepares a new heaven and a new earth for believers to reside. Now, this isn't like a, a beautification process of earth as we know it, or a beautification, or like, hey, there's some fault in heaven. Let me kind of fix it. It's all new. It is all new. And so Jesus is creating this new city, this new earth for us to reign and to be um, with Jesus as he reigns for us to worship him. In Matthew 24, Jesus even said this. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so he was looking forward to it. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look and see what is it that we know about this new heaven and earth. From what John is describing, what can we pick up from this? So if you're taking notes, the first thing that we, can, we, we know and we see is that he will dwell among us. God will dwell with us. In verse 3, it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Now, when I think about this, and I'm just gonna be honest with you, I've wrestled with this all week, thinking about this, trying to meditate on it, and to be really transparent and authentic. I told the first service, man, for whatever reason, Satan didn't want me to, to preach this message. 
And it was hard. Like last night, I think I'm going on like two hours of sleep. I had like acid reflux, you know. Don't you like that? That's what happens when you turn 40, okay? My shoulders hurt. I couldn't sleep for whatever. And I, I literally woke up, just confession. I was like, man, I do not want to preach this. And God said, oh, no, you're going to preach it. And even I told production, I changed some of my points, some different things. Um, and praise God because um, one person responded to the gospel this morning in the first service. And so I'm going to preach it. I don't care about spiritual warfare and what Satan's trying to stop um, from, from doing in me and our church and from what he's trying to stop you from hearing. But this is so important because as I've wrestled with this, can you imagine if God is dwelling with us at the end of uh, in the times? I mean, think about that. Can you imagine sitting in the presence of the Almighty? The creator of the universe, the maker of the stars, just sitting in his presence. Now, I haven't been a Christian for a long, long time. Some of you, you're like, man, that's nothing. But I will tell you, I've been able and been blessed. There have been several times in my life where I feel like I was in the presence of God. Have you ever had those moments? Oftentimes for me, I'm just speaking for me, it is in a time of worship. I mean, our worship team does a great job. Sometimes you see me down front and you might be like, oh, he's getting all charismatic Pentecostal on us, you know. Whatever, something's happening. But there's times where I just close my eyes. And I know on average the song is probably five or six minutes. But to me, who cares about time? It is just a sweet moment where I feel like it's me and Jesus and there is no concept of time. Have you ever had that moment? And my eyes are closed. Now, oftentimes, full disclosure, I open them, and I don't know where I'm at. Like, I'm, like, walking over here. I'm like, oh, sorry, ma'am. I was worshiping. So, um, excuse me, excuse me. But, you know, there's, like, this sweet moment. And if that is this one of those, just a taste of what is to come, man, the beautiful picture that for all eternity that he will dwell among us. I mean, that's, my mind is blown. What a treat. What, what an experience for believers, that one day that we will be able to sit and it won't be like what you see on TV and on the cartoons that we like gain weight, wear a diaper and play a harp, you know, but that we will be worshiping the Almighty in his presence. What a beautiful, beautiful picture because he will dwell among us. It will be distraction-free, sin-free, worry-free, no doubt, no stress. Uh, I mean, just the beauty of us being with Jesus. Now, when it says this dwelling place, it literally translates into tabernacle or temple. And if you know anything about Old Testament history and scripture, the Israelites um, uh, in the temple, it was a sign because they believed that the presence of God lived inside the tabernacle. That's why you had the holies, uh, holy of holies a place where there was the presence of God. There he was. And so there was the dwelling place, the temple or the tabernacle. Oftentimes the priest would go in and they could only visit a, a couple of times with certain rules and, you know, sanctification processes and all this stuff. A lot of times they would send them into the Holy of Holies with ropes around their waist because they didn't know what was going to happen. They'd pull them out because the presence of God was there. And what we see at the end times is God um, and Jesus are creating new heaven and a new earth and reigning. There is no tabernacle. There is no temple. Why? Because God is no longer just in isolation. He's everywhere. His presence is dwelling among us. 
I was reminded that when we see Jesus' birth that we're going to celebrate in a few weeks, to give him the name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So, yeah, as believers, currently we have the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us. But could you imagine at the end of time when mankind is done and we're in the presence of Jesus, we are seeing him face to face. And that's what we have to look forward to. It's an incredible, incredible moment. And if you really think about it, Jesus and God being with us, being face to face, is really the solution to the problem of mankind and the problem that we face from the very beginning of time in Genesis 3. That when sin entered the world because of Adam and Eve, it separated us from his presence. It separated us from a holy God. And we're in this battle every single day of our life. And so if you know Scripture, um, if not, it's okay. I'm going to paint a picture for you. It ends with us dwelling with God. In Genesis, we see the very intent of God was for us to dwell with him and him to dwell with us. Sin broke that. The curse broke that. And so God is redeeming that. And the way our story or the story ends in Revelation is the way it began. The way that God intended for us to live with him in his presence. Um, and so it's an incredible, incredible moment where God is dwelling with us. Point two, we see that God will make all things new. Verse one, John says, I saw a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Now you might be thinking, the sea is no more. What does that mean? I mean, I kind of like the beach. I hope that's in heaven. You know, I mean, Myrtle, Myrtle Beach is the best beach in the world. It's paradise. <laughs> Dirty Myrtle. <laughs> All right. They have airbrush t-shirts, right? Um, but anyway, I uh, said so no one ever. Okay. So, but what, what Bible scholars think right here is not that the new earth will not have any bodies of water. It's not what he's talking about. But what he's talking about is that because Jesus reigns, it'll be a place of peace. And that the sea actually symbolizes chaos with waves, storms, wind, lightning, thunder, those types of things. And so what we see is as he comes, he makes all things new. It says the former things have passed away. He was seated on the throne and behold, I am making all things new. That's what God does. If you are a believer, you, your life is an example of this. We see in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. It's what God does. He makes things new. And so at the end of time, he is making all things new. He's returning and making it all new. Now, I'm at, I'm, I would probably argue this. I think as human beings, we like new things. Are you with me? I li we like new things. Um, whether it's, I remember when me and Sloan first got married, we moved into a new, uh, a new house. It was a townhome, um, national builder. It was like the cheapest thing that we could afford. But you walk in, you're like, man, I love the smell of new builder's grade carpet, <laughs> you know, or the paint. You know, I remember she was like, let's get a dog. And I'm like, no, everything is new. And a puppy would ruin all of that. All right. You think about that. Think about a new car. You get a new car and you're like, man, I love this new car smell. You with me? I mean, some of us, you have 
cars from the 80s, and when you go to the car wash, you're like, can I get that new car smell air freshener? I like the way it smells. It doesn't smell like a new car. You know, and just on a side note, let me get on a tangent. Can I, I'll just tell you, one of the things I hate about being an adult are cars. I hate cars. It's like the world's biggest expense. It's like the one expense as an adult, you pay a gazillion dollars. You know, if you get a brand new one, you drive it off the lot, you lose it already, you know. And then you spend the rest of your vehicle's life putting tires on it, changing the brakes, oil change, the alternator goes out, you need a new battery, all these things. And before you know it, you spent $300,000 on a $50,000 vehicle. Correct? I hate it. Then you sell it on Facebook Marketplace for $1,000 to some poor college student. Let's be honest. And you're like, man, I don't even know. I don't even know what happened. I hate cars, right? But here's the thing. We like new things, but new things become old and they lose their satisfaction. You know, like I remember we, we bought uh, Sloan's van a few years ago and it was a couple years old, but it was new to us. And I'm like, man, I'm gonna wash this thing every single day. This minivan, this Toyota Sienna is the bomb, you know? And then you realize you have kids and then the bomb is actually inside your vehicle, <laughs> right? And you're like, what in the world? It's worth nothing now. Thanks for the Chick-fil-A sauce, Polynesian sauce stain on the carpet. Really appreciate that, you know? But there's like this satisfaction at first. You're like, man, it's so new. I'm going to take care of it. But it gets old and it gets worn out and it needs to be fixed. But when Jesus comes, there is no patchwork. It is no, let's just kind of get by with fixing this and that. All things are made new. And it's a place where there is no more pain. There is no more hurt. There's no more tears and crying and mourning. It is a place of worship that we get to spend with our Father in heaven. All that is wrong will be made right. And Jesus will fix everything that sin broke. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And then third, in closing, we see that he will complete our salvation. In verses six and seven, he says um, that he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. And so what we see is God's plan has come full circle. And what was destroyed by sin is now fully redeemed and restored. The plan of God is finished because Believers are now officially, physically God's sons and daughters. And so I love this. I wrote this down. This is probably I'm preaching to myself. A true mark of a great father is that he always returns to his children. It doesn't matter what my boys do. I might not like them in the moment. I might be disappointed. I might be sad, frustrated, or mad. I always love them. I'm always their dad. And Jesus returns to be with his kids and to reign for all eternity. And so you might be here this morning and you're like, man, that's a lot. It is a lot. And I don't have all the answers. And the end times, man, is an amazing, amazing story of Jesus's work and why we see the significance of the cross and his, his plan of salvation. But you might be asking, why does this matter? And here's why it matters. Eternity matters. Your eternity matters. 
And we live in a world that kind of downplays it and says, well, everybody's going to heaven or there's no such thing as hell. No, there is. There's heaven and hell. And one of the things I just want to communicate to you this morning is that your eternity is the single most important destination of this life and the next. The question you have to be honest with is where am I going to spend it? Don't wait on someone else to tell you. Don't say, well, I'll get there one day. There might not be a one day. So you are faced with a decision to say, okay, where am I going to spend eternity? And so it is the single most important destination of our lives right now and in the future. And as we see for the believer, the story ends happily ever after. For the unbeliever, it's not so happy. And as we see, as John closes in verse eight, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So as we see in Revelation, God offers the end of the story. So here's my invitation to you this morning. What's the end of your story? What's the end of your story? And I pray that as the band is gonna close us, that you will respond to Jesus with whatever the Holy Spirit's working in your life right now. The reason we worship is because God is great. And the reason we worship and we raise our hands and we sing is because we know and we trust in the salvation that he provides. But that salvation only starts when we acknowledge our sin that separate us from his presence. And we say, you know what? God, I believe that you sent Jesus to die the death that I deserve. And the sin that's in my life, I ask for forgiveness. And to the best I know how, I give you my life and I surrender it to you. I wanna live for you. Forgive me. I wanna spend eternity with you. And it's in that moment that God saves you. Not church attendance and cultural Christianity, not giving to the church, not even reading your Bible. What saves you is your point of surrender to Jesus. So what is going to be the end of your story one day? Let's pray together. Father, we come and I know this morning is heavy on many of our hearts and it's hard to just look at and to really fully grasp, but that one day, every single one of us will be face to face with you, God Almighty. There will be no time for excuses or what ifs or I was going to, but that God, that in that moment, it comes down to us having, having a relationship with you or not. And so for the person that's here this morning, that's, they believe in you maybe. Maybe they've been to church a couple times. They even like some of the songs but they've never given their life to you, that God today would be that day, that they would not leave here without fully knowing and being confident of their life being surrendered to you. And that God, with that being said in the same token, that as believers who have made that decision, let this be a wake-up call, that maybe we've stumbled along the way, maybe we haven't given our all, but Father, that you deserve our all. And for us to look to you with great hope and anticipation and say, I don't know when you're returning, but I wanna live 
as if you were tomorrow. To live, so for us to live with that anticipation, that urgency, to see lives changed, to see our neighbors changed, our family members changed, for us not to be complacent with where they would spend eternity, but for us to be obedient to the call to go and make disciples. So help us. So as we worship, let us respond with our hearts and our minds. It's in your son's name, amen. Let's stand together, church. Let's respond to Jesus during a time of worship. If you need prayer and want to talk, I'll be down front.